I'm the Astronomer Royal, Martin Rees, and everything I teach the Queen about astronomy, I've learned from the Jodcast. The Jodcast, with you in spirit, with Megan Argo, Adam Anderson, John Field, Melanie Jeanne, Jen Gupta, Liz Guzman, Leo Hugbale, Libby Jones and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, June 2011 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Libby Jones and joining me today is Jen and Adam and also we have Leo who's its first time on hello. the Jogcast. Can we say hello as well? Hello. Hello. <laughs> so Leo, would you want to just give us a little introduction? Um, okay, I've just started a PhD here at Manchester so I'm studying, I'm working with the Vista variables in the Via Lactea survey which is using the Vista infrared telescope which has a very wide field to take pictures of the Milky Way bulge every night uh, for a whole series of nights. And then by comparing an image from each night to the next, we can search for variable objects in the Milky Way. Um, so we can look for all sorts of things like uh, exoplanets or binary stars, or what I'm particularly interested in is intrinsically variable stars. So these are like old stars that are actually inflating and deflating and actually sort of breathing. Um, so I'm looking at ways to actually find these automatically in the data. So they change brightness as they breathe in and out. Yeah, and some of these have like quite a fixed kind of uh, relationship between how bright they get and how fast they oscillate. So um, you can use them as kind of distance indicators. So with this, with RLI rays, these are we'll be able to sort of chart the centre of the Milky Way in 3D. That sounds really cool. In the show this time, we have more interviews from the National Astronomy Meeting, and we find out what you can see in the June night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, Comet Hartley 2 shows its inner nature, a population of orphaned planets, and crystalline rain. Comets are icy bodies known to contain material left over from the formation of the solar system. They spend most of their time far from the sun, where there is very little heat, but when their elongated orbits bring them close to the sun, they begin to warm up. As the surface heats up, so-called volatile materials, chemicals with low boiling points, begin to vaporise, resulting in the sometimes spectacular tails which are commonly associated with cometary bodies. While these tails are large and diffuse, the body of the comet itself is quite small and difficult to study directly. While the composition of a comet can be determined to an extent from studying the diffuse cloud of volatile material, the question of the nature of the nucleus itself is more difficult to answer. One model of comet formation, the gradual accumulation of dust and ice particles, results in a single large uniform mass. An alternative model involves the merger of a number of small mini-comets, resulting in a loose body of material with regions of different composition. But observations of the comet Hartley 2 suggest that, for this comet at least, the answer might be neither. A team of astronomers led by Michael Mummer of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre used a very large telescope in Chile and the Keck Telescope in Hawaii to take spectra of the coma of comet Hartley 2 over several months. If the nucleus is composed of a uniform material, then the chemical composition of the coma ought to remain constant as the body rotates. But if it is made up of a conglomeration of smaller protocomets, then the coma should vary in composition as different vents rotate into sunlight and become active. Images of the core from NASA's epoxy mission show that the core is not uniform, with evidence of two, possibly three, types of ice. The researchers also found that some chemicals, including water, ethane and methanol, varied on a timescale consistent with the known rotation rate of the nucleus. The variation was significant, not just between different rotations, but on much shorter timescales too, 
suggesting that measurements of the composition of other comets, where different chemicals have been searched for at different times, may give the wrong idea about a comet's overall composition. Despite this evidence suggesting Comet Hartley 2 is made of smaller proto-comets, the overall composition of the coma varied very little over several months, suggesting that the nucleus is actually very uniform. What the researchers think is happening is that chunks of water ice deep in the comet's nucleus are held together with frozen carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide evaporates at a lower temperature than the water ice, carrying chunks of ice with it into the coma, where the ice then evaporates, giving the impression that the composition of the comet is more uniform than it actually is. It is not yet known whether all comets behave this way, or if Hartley 2 is unique. Hartley 2 is the third comet where periodic variation of volatile compounds has been observed, and the first where imaging has led to an unambiguous association with the rotation of the nucleus. While Hartley 2 is a Kuiper Belt comet, the other comet to be studied in detail is Comet Halley, which is from the Oort cloud, further out in the solar system. The remarkable similarities in the composition of these two comets may suggest a common origin for at least some of the bodies from these two different parts of the solar system. We think of planets as being large gas or rocky bodies orbiting around a parent star. Our own planet is roughly 5 billion years old and orbits a fairly average G-type star at a mean distance of 150 million kilometres. But it seems there is a significant population of planets which exist without a parent star. In a paper published in the journal Nature on May 19th, a team of researchers report the discovery of 10 free-floating planet candidates with masses similar to that of Jupiter. Although there is some evidence for lone planets in regions of star formation, these are objects between 3 and 15 times the mass of Jupiter, and there are large uncertainties in estimates of the size of the population. A population of lone planets has previously been predicted to exist, but this is the first time evidence for them has been found. Planets in our solar system are visible to us here on Earth because they reflect the light of the Sun. Having no starlight to reflect, planets existing in free space will be much harder to spot. This new discovery is the result of observations of the Galactic Centre, obtained by a joint Japan-New Zealand team in 2006 and 2007, and confirmed by a Polish team. The collaboration, led by Takahiro Sumi from Osaka University in Japan, used the principle of microlensing to find these so-called orphan planets. The detections were made by the MOA collaboration, using observations made with a telescope at Mount John University Observatory in New Zealand, which is used to regularly scan dense star fields towards the centre of our galaxy for gravitational microlensing events. These occur when something, such as a star or a planet, passes in front of another, more distant star. The passing body's gravity warps the light of the background star, causing it to magnify and brighten. Heftier passing bodies, like massive stars, will warp the light of the background star to a greater extent, resulting in brightening events that can last weeks. Small planet-sized bodies will cause less of a distortion, and brighten a star for only a few days or less. Another group, the Ogle Collaboration, observed many of the same microlensing events with a 1.3-metre telescope in Chile, independently confirming the analysis of the MOA group. It is possible that these objects may be in very large orbits around host stars, but the teams found no evidence of hosts in the data out to a distance of 10 astronomical units, further than the orbit of Saturn. Direct imaging of the fields also found no evidence for a host star for any of the planetary bodies detected. These results suggest that there may be up to twice as many unbound Jupiter-class planets as there are main-sequence stars with masses less than the Sun, and that unbound planets may be one and a half times more common than planets with host stars. These planets may have formed on their own, much like the class of faint small brown dwarf stars, but what may happen is that they form in a planetary system around a star where multiple giant planets could scatter some of the bodies into very wide or completely unbound orbits. And finally, stars are made of gas, 
but as they form, they are surrounded by a much larger gas cloud, and often a protoplanetary disk which contains gas, ice and dust. Many chemicals have been detected in these gas clouds and disks, including crystals of the mineral olivine. Found in a variety of forms, olivine is a silicate mineral which is found here on the Earth in some gemstones or the green sand of Hawaii's beaches, but it is also a common mineral on the surface of the Moon, and has been found elsewhere in the universe. Olivine, in the form of forsterite crystals, has been detected in the protoplanetary disks of young stars. But in new observations made with the Spitzer telescope, a team of astronomers has found evidence of these crystals in the colder outer gas around a protostar, where the temperature is a chilly minus 170 degrees Celsius. This is unexpected as temperatures high enough to melt rock are needed to form the crystals. The team, led by Tom McGeath at the University of Toledo in Ohio, suggests that the crystals were formed near the young star's surface and were carried by jets into the cooler cloud where they slowly fall back towards the star. This may help explain why comets, which are formed in the cooler outer reaches of planetary systems, contain minerals such as these which can only be formed at much higher temperatures. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, for the first of our interviews from the National Astronomy Meeting, we have uh, Melanie talking to Gianfranco Bertoni about dark matter. Hi, this is uh, Melanie, and I'm here at the National Astronomical Meeting in uh, London now. And I have with me Professor Gianfranco Bertone from the uh, University of Zurich and Institut d'Astrophysique de Paris, who uh, just talked to us about dark matter search. So what can you tell us about dark matter? What is dark matter? I wish I knew. Um, the uh, dark matter, I mean, we know that there is some form of uh, matter that is very different from the matter we know in the universe. And uh, we have evidence for it, um, a lot of different pieces of evidence, actually. Uh, they come from uh, the observation of galaxies, the obs observations of clusters, and the observation of the cosmic microwave background. What's the cosmic microwave background? Cosmic microwave background is a sort of a relic radiation that was left after the Big Bang. And by studying it, actually, actually by studying the anisotropies in this uh, uh, cosmic microwave background, uh, we can uh, figure out things like the abundance of the ordinary matter, so everything that makes uh, planets, people, stars, and everything else, and uh, um, the abundance of dark matter, which is uh, something completely different. Uh, we we know uh, that it cannot be um, made of uh, standard matter, but we do not know uh, of what it is made. So we have some ideas about it, and we are trying to test it, uh, these ideas uh, in accelerators and with these uh, direct and indirect searches. Okay, so what do we know about the dark matter? So we know, for instance, how much dark matter there is on average in the universe, and even locally. Uh, so we know for, I mean, we have estimates of what is the uh, quantity of dark matter that is streaming through us as we speak, for instance. Uh, and we know also that uh, the interactions of this dark matter with um, us is uh, very small. And, uh, you know, an obvious uh, way of seeing this is that um, I mean, we do not perceive it, not even with our most uh, uh, sophisticated experiments. How do we know all this? What um, Was there, like, experiments? Was there observations for that? So the first, uh, actually, um, evidence for a dark matter... Uh, was found by this uh, Swiss astronomer uh, who was working back then um, at Caltech in the US. And uh, he realized that um, he was observing uh, what they were called back then uh, the nebulae in um, uh, the Coma Cluster, which is a cluster of galaxies. 
So he was observing these uh, galaxies and he estimated uh, by looking at the motion and the distribution of velocities of these uh, galaxies, he estimated how much mass was in the cluster. Then he compared this estimate of the mass with the galaxy he was observing with the telescope and he realized that there was a mismatch of a factor of 10. So back then, you know, observations were not particularly good. This guy was a bit, uh, you know, not, not necessarily the most mainstream guy in, uh, in science. So this was left there for uh, actually many years. And, uh, you know, the, a big change uh, happened in a, in a paradigm shift actually happened in the late 70s after people like Vera Rubin and many, many others uh, started uh, studying the um, uh, rotation curves of galaxies. What's a rotation curve? Right, so the rotation curve tells you how fast uh, the stars and the gas move around in a galaxy as a function of their distance from the center. Okay, so you make a prediction for this, um, uh, how these rotation curves should look like uh, in standard Newtonian gravity, general relativity. And what you find is that um, instead of decaying this rotation curve, as you would expect uh, from uh, Newtonian dynamics, these rotation curves actually remain very flat down uh, out to the you know outer parts of these galaxies, uh, which was um, uh, immediately interpreted as um, the evidence for a new component of matter, which was uh, you know contributing to the mass at that large distance from the center of the galaxy. So by the end of the 70s, there's actually a review paper in the, in 78, 1978, uh, that starts by saying, um, there are, um, there is an increasing, um, number of reasons, uh, that make us believe that the mass of galaxies, mass of galaxies has been underestimated by a factor of 10. Okay. So this was a major breakthrough in, uh, in astrophysics. However, I mean, it's already 30 years after that, and we still don't have a clue about uh, the nature of the dark matter. I guess that's why it's called dark. Absolutely. <laughs> so you were talking about direct and indirect uh, ways of detecting the dark matter. Um, can you give us some example of what uh, an indirect way and what a direct way would be? Sure. So let's start from uh, direct detection, which is the, the most... Uh, you know, uh, simple thing to, um, to, uh, to explain, which is, um, so the idea is, uh, you build a big detector and in practice, you wait for one of these particles that are streaming through us and through the detector to interact with uh, one of the nucleus, nuclei in the detector. Okay. Is it like, uh, like the neutrino detectors? It's almost, yeah, in a way it is similar to ne the neutrino detectors. And what you actually have to do is to go deep underground because there are many particles that interact with the nuclei in your detector, which are typically cosmic rays that penetrate in your detector and deposit energy there. So that's why it's called direct detection because you just uh, directly measure energy deposited by these dark matter particles. Okay. And then indirect detection, since you asked, uh, is... Um, it's a bit different. Um, so we know some of the properties of these dark matter particles. We know, for instance, that at least in a class of model, which is called weakly inter interacting massive particles, or in short, WIMPs. Uh, Love that name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure it was a good name, but anyway. Um, this class of models, actually, these particles are expected to annihilate with each other. So essentially, they 
collide with each other, to, to say it in, um, in simple terms, and they produce particles of a different type. Okay, so they convert in energy, and then uh, they produce new particles. Uh, so what we uh, hope to do is to look for the annihilation products of these dark matter particles. So you know we are living in a galaxy, the Milky Way. At the center of the Milky Way, we know that there is a, a big concentration of uh, dark matter. And the idea is to look with uh, gamma-ray telescopes or neutrino telescopes in that direction and see whether there is an excess of this annihilation radiation. And this is what, this is what we are currently doing uh, using data from um, uh, the Fermi satellite, which is a gamma-ray satellite, and um, Air Cherenkov telescopes like HASS in Namibia, and Veritas um, in the US, and MAGIC in the Canary Islands, and neutrino telescopes and many other things, actually. Okay. You also mentioned the uh, LHC in your talk. Um, why uh, are you using it for uh, looking for dark matter, too? Right, so one of the reasons why uh, particle physics particle physicists got interested in um, uh, the dark matter problem is that there is a, a very intriguing um, there is a very intriguing coincidence, I would call it, which is that um, uh, you know particle physicists were investigating uh, ways to extend the standard model of particle physics. And they came up with theories like supersymmetry, for instance. What is supersymmetry? Right, supersymmetry is... Um, a new symmetry uh, of uh, the standard model. There are many symmetries in the standard model. And um, I mean, it is possible that if uh, supersymmetry exists, in, it associates uh, particles, supersymmetric particles, or supersymmetric partners, uh, as they are called, uh, to every particle of the standard model. Okay? So what happens is that um, at the LHC, you may, uh, for instance, produce by smashing together a proton and an antiproton in these beams at very high energy, you may hope to produce things like um, uh, supersymmetric quarks, supersymmetric partners of the quarks, or squarks in the supersymmetric jargon. Well, it's not nice, but it's still better than WIMPs, probably. Uh, <laughs> uh, so what you can do is to follow the decay of these new particles that you have produced, and among the debris of this uh, decay chain, uh, there would be the so-called neutralinos, which are the partners of other particles of the standard model, which are called the, the gauge bosons. Okay, So if you produce them, uh, a, actually you can um, measure uh, the energy that is carried away by these particles. And it turns out that these neutralinos, so neutralinos are being uh, discovered and discussed in a context which is completely different from uh, dark matter. But the interesting thing is that in many of these theories, you can, uh, uh, I mean, the, the abundance of these neutralinos in the universe can exactly match the um, abundance of dark matter required. I mean, neutralinos would be perfect uh, dark matter candidates. So if we could discover these new particles, and if we could prove that they make, uh, you know, 23% of the universe, I mean, we could claim to have discovered the dark matter. Isn't that a bit odd to have something that, that makes up, as you say, 23% of the universe? It's, it's a huge number and really having no idea what it is. Do you think just one particle would be enough or could it be like a family of particles or several different things? Okay, so uh, this is one of, um, you know, very interesting possibility. Uh, you know, there are many people who, uh, who say that um, 
you know, imagine you would you were living in the, the dark side of the universe, uh, which is made of dark matter, for instance, and uh, you discovered that there is a five percent of the energy budget and matter and energy budget of the universe, which is made of these you know strange baryons, as they would call them. If if they made the, the hypothesis that we were just only one particle making planets and people and whatever, of course it would be completely wrong. So there are people who are saying that um, uh, you know a similar situation might be happening here, and that uh, there is an entire dark sector rather than a dark matter particle. However, in these theories that we are studying, there is a single uh, dark matter particle, and the key point there is that. Uh, you know, all the particles of the standard of the of this new theory can uh, are are unstable in the sense they can decay into something lighter than them. The neutralino is uh, the lightest particle of the new theory. It would be like the equivalent of our neutrino, I guess. Not exactly, because there are also supersymmetric partners of the neutrino okay. that are called neutrinos. So th- this is still different. Uh, but the idea was more or less the same. Particles which are neutral and uh, interact feebly with, uh, with, with ordinary matter. So um, in general, it is possible that the dark sector is more complicated than being only one particle. In practice, most of the theories that we are studying currently uh, usually uh, end up with the prediction of only one particle, which is made stable by some uh, specific uh, symmetry of the, of the theory. Thank you very much for... Uh talking to us and uh, it was a very good talk. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Thanks for that Melanie. Now Mark talked to Mike Edmonds about Evolve Stars. I've managed to snatch a few minutes to talk to Professor Mike Edmonds of the University of Cardiff. Thanks very much for joining us. Happy to join you. Now the session that um, you were speaking in was called Unsolved Problems of Post Main Sequence Stellar Evolution. So that's old stars coming towards the end of their lives. And so what I was wondering was what are all the problems? What's wrong with them? Well, I, I don't think there's anything wrong, wrong with the stars. It's what we think about them that may be wrong in our, our theories. I, it's amazing how much progress has been made over the past 50 years, I suppose, in the study of structure of stars and the revolution that came about when you could use large computers to make good models. And basically, we understand pretty well the broad outline of stellar evolution. You talk about old stars. Well, old is a relative term. It depends on the mass of the star, the the very massive stars age very, very quickly and go through quite complex evolution on a short time scale. That's very important when you're looking at the very early stages of the universe and how galaxies form and the first stars and so on. One of the problems is understanding the details of very massive star evolution, partly because they're important in the very early universe, partly also because they're the main chemical factories in the universe that's where as they explode as supernovae we get most of the chemical elements from so they're very interesting in their own right also though uh, less massive stars uh, stars like our sun evolve on a much longer time scale of course but there's still a a lot of interesting physics and a lot of interesting stages uh, and problems that we still don't understand in detail so we've got a very good broad outline of how it goes but some of the details are unclear and it is amazing in a way that we can begin to study those details because you're looking at quite small effects in some case in the observation and so on and these are very big computer models and they're becoming very detailed it's it's rather wonderful in a way that you can do it in such detail but it's like um, having a biography 
You, you could have a, a sort of a biography that's a one-page obituary. And, you know, we've got that. We know roughly what happened in life. But you can imagine have a, a biography of somebody where you've got six volumes of the biography with every detail in. Well, we're not up to six volumes yet. We're sort of maybe getting in some cases up to one volume, but there's still a lot more to, to fill in. So there's obviously quite a lot of observations of these types of stars available. Is it then that um, there's an abundance of data, but it's difficult to fit a model to it, what's happening? It's a bit of both. It's like any science, really, in that, that there are some observations, and you, you then do quite a detailed theory, and it fits some of the observation. Then you find you need to do more observation to test that little bit of the theory. And when you've done those more observations, thing, now we've got that more data in it, the theory doesn't quite fix it, doesn't it count for that little bit we've just found. And so it's a sort of iterative process. And inevitably, in all these things, as soon as you start doing something in detail, you want more observations, you want more detail. And again, this is another great thing that uh, I've certainly seen today, is with the improvements in some of the instrumentation we have now and the telescopes and, and the techniques actually used for discovering these things, that the amount of data you can get and good quality data you can get has, has really gone up and the precision on it has gone up. And that really allows you to begin to see subtle effects. Now, sometimes you say, well, subtle effects aren't very interesting. They're just a little bit of detail, but often not. Often they're really telling you something fundamental about the physics and so on going on. I mean, for example, just let, let me take one example today, which I thought was rather neat. There's a class of star known as a barium star. And they're called barium stars because in their spectrum they seem to have a, a strong overabundance of the element barium. We understand the nuclear processes that give rise to this. It's a thing called the slow neutron capture process. And we understand pretty much how it works. This must have gone on in a, in a binary star uh, situation where one of the stars has exploded, at least evolved. It might not have exploded, but it pushed stuff over anyway onto the uh, other star. And some of that was this extra barium. So these stars have been known for many years to be Binary stars, all of them, it's, it's rare a thing in, in astronomy, except every barium star is definitely a binary star. It's 100%. They've all got no, companions. They've all got companions. They're all happily married off. Okay. But what's interesting is if you look at the details of the, the orbits of these systems, you would expect because they're in such good relationships for such a long time, like old married couples, they've got to know each other very well. And you would expect the orbits of these binary stars to be very, very circular. They'd be just almost perfect circles around each other. But it turns out that they're not. And that's a bit of a problem. Why not? They should have done this if, if they'd been for this, this binary stage for, and lived together for so long. And the idea was today, well, there must be something going on that when these binaries are evolving, one of them does put the material across onto the other, where these various processes are going on, it must disturb the binary orbit in some way. And they were some interesting calculations had been done saying, well, if we, while this is going on, it gets a little kick, it gets perturbed in so much. How far do you have to perturb it before you actually get back to this, uh, what we see in these orbits? And there was some quite successful work done on that, that if you could kick these by a certain amount, then you got back to these binary. And it, it's, it's a sort of idea that actually the dynamical orbits of these systems are actually affected during their binary evolution. Now, that's not something that was necessarily suspected before until somebody looked in detail at this, had the sufficiently accurate radio velocity measurements of these stars to be able to see these small effects and then begin to think about what goes on. And so it feeds into more understanding of the details of stellar evolution. Mm -hmm. One of the things you mentioned is that these stars in the late stages of their life are really dictating the chemical makeup of, of, of our galaxy. And um, obviously at the end of their lives, they're sort of becoming uh, rather inflated. And at some point they're giving off a lot of material and you yourself spoke about dust production in stars. Could you tell us a bit about that? 
the dust between the stars, we know that there's a, there's a sort of, it's almost like smoke, really. It's, it's the same sort of size as c- cigarette smoke, but don't try this yourselves. Um, <laughs> it's like cigarette smoke in between the stars. And it, it, it's, it's been known for many years and it has effects. It dims starlight and, in fact, also it radiates quite strongly in the infrared. It's warmish. And sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's warmish, and that radiates quite a lot of radiation that we can see. And one of the problems has been, if you look at very distant galaxies from very early on in the universe, they seem to be radiating an awful lot of this far infrared radiation, which, as far as we can see, can only come from dust in the interstellar medium. And the question is, if these are very early galaxies, how did they have time to make dust? Because you can't make it in the interstellar medium. You can grow it a bit, but the actual seed from which you grow it has to be done in stars. Only stars have atmospheres that are dense enough for what's called nucleation, which actually means that the core of the grain, what's going to become the core of the grain, will form. Now, there have been various suggestions that maybe that happens in the explosive scenario where some stars explode and maybe as well as making the chemical elements it actually condenses it and delivers it in solid form you know here's your pizza sir ready wrapped in solid form that's a possibility but there have been some suggestions that doesn't happen and i was asking trying to get people to say whether in fact there could be a stage of stellar evolution whereby it's before the star becomes a supernova it's a giant star it has an extended atmosphere but it's made some carbon and maybe some other elements some people suggested maybe it made enough magnesium too in the star itself to provide the stuff to make the dust so it's making the chemical element it's pushing it up into its atmosphere it's forming into dust in the atmosphere it's getting out into the interstellar medium growing a bit more by accreting as we call it material in a bit like a snowball in the interstellar medium and that could be a fast process that does provide you enough with enough dust to explain what we see in the very early universe it was speculative and nobody threw me out <laughs> um but we'll, uh, nobody could provide say oh yes that's a detailed model we've got that but it's something that can be looked for so by looking at the chemistry of the stars, you're actually able to look very, very much further away than the distance at which you could resolve individual stars right back to the early universe. Absolutely. Obviously, one of the great things of interest at the moment is the early universe and what the early galaxies were like, how did it all get going and so on. And obviously, that's so far away that, as you say, you you don't have very detailed observations from it. And a problem would be, well, what you'd like to do is understand the physics of that. So you'd really like to be able to do things nearby where you could get lots of detail of observation. The problem that is that we don't know of that many objects nearby which have low enough chemical abundances because in the early galaxies they wouldn't have made many metals and many uh, chemical elements. So we need something with, nearby with low abundances. This would happen in very massive stars, but they're not that many massive stars. When you form stars, you get lots of small ones, but only a few massive ones. So trying to find a few low metallicity, very high mass stars in the local neighborhood is difficult. So, you know, a lot of this has to be done by indirect argument. So in the next few years, how do you see these unsolved problems being answered? Is it mainly through observations or improved modelling or just a combination of both? It's both. It's both. In studying the evolution of giant and supergiant stars, the computer models have still got a long way to go. They're very complex, they're very sophisticated, they're very good, but because of all sorts of physical processes that can go on, particularly various kinds of convection, which is sort of large-scale motions of material transporting heat and, and possibly chemicals around inside the star, that's been quite resistant to detailed studies just because the the computing effort required is huge. 
But supercomputing is getting cheaper. You can do much better calculations now than even you could 10 years ago. So what will happen is far more sophisticated, large-scale, dynamic calculations will be done, and those will give you better and better models. I say they will, and you hope they will, because it's getting awfully complicated, and you have to see your way carefully through the physics and check you're doing right. So that's one thing I think better modeling will help. I think people are addressing more and more carefully exactly the chemical processes and the physical processes that give rise to the formation of dust, for example. That will help. It's still not clear how many stars generate the winds that bring material off the star. That's still an ongoing area of study after 20, 25 years. Maybe that will be hardened up a bit more. It's still still a bit of a put your thumb in the wind and sort of uh, theory rather than the real detailed theory. So that could improve. And just better and better observations give you an, a much better way of testing your models. We're hearing today, for example, about some observations of binary systems where you've got white dwarfs in the system and where they eclipse, where one moves in front of the other. That helps you measure the radius of the star. If you can observe the shift of the spectral lines in the spectrum, you can get information on the masses of the stars. And if you can combine those two together, you can then look at things like is the radius I predict for a star like this right for the mass I can see? Now, they're getting masses for some of these systems accurate to a half a percent. Hmm. Now, that's when you start doing precision stuff. I, you know, not that many years ago, if you knew it to within 10%, you were doing pretty well hmm. for the mass. But to get it within a tenth of a percent and so on, if you're beginning to get that sort of accuracy, and then you can begin to put very good constraints on some of your models. And that really, again, helps you moving on to the next stage. It's an interplay. It's more observations, more theory, lots of chat, and lots of conferences. <laughs> well, just as a last thing, um, it seemed to me in that session that it's a field that throws up quite a lot of surprises. I was wondering if there was anything that anyone spoke about that just particularly caught your attention as being a, something that just wasn't expected. Well, I think I have to go back to this thing about the barium stars. I, I think it's fascinating that, that there was something I hadn't expected a binary orbit to be shown where you could actually see that something radical had happened to the binary orbit during this particular stage of evolution. That was very interesting. And another thing, too, which I thought was very interesting and I hadn't expected perhaps so much progress on was what are called BE stars. These are stars which may be red giants that have been stripped of their outsides leaving the core, and the core then just looks like a very hot star, because it's been hot, and but with just a thin layer of hydrogen over it. So it looks almost like a normal star, but it isn't really, because it, it's a different kind of soft centre, if you like, or hard yeah. centre, chocolate. And those are very important in making predictions about galaxy evolution. They're used as a tool in studying galaxy evolution. And I was very pleased to see that a lot more progress had been made in those as to how many of them are binary stars, what their actual state of evolution is. Because it's details of stellar evolution like that, if you can tie it down, just help you so much interpreting the rest of astronomy. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's quite a complex web. And sometimes it's very useful, not only just, it may not be a vast physical advance on its own. You know, you say, well, we thought it probably looked like that or it would do like that. But if you can pin it down, then it, really provides you with a substructure, a scaffolding, mm -hmm. around which you can do other things, like study the whole of galactic evolution, which, of course, is a very major problem. Hmm. Thank you very much for being interviewed. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for that, Mark. And finally, we have Liz talking to Rob Izzard about barium stars. Hello. So I'm here with Rob Izzard from University of Bonn. He gave a talk about mystery barium stars, and I wanted to ask him, what's a barium star and where's the mystery? 
about them? Well, the barium stars are these giant stars. They're very bright. There's many of them on the sky. We know a hundred or more in the local neighborhood. They have this spectral line of barium, which makes them easy to spot. So they've been known for many, many decades. The mystery is really that they're all binary stars. We know that because we see the spectral lines moving on the spectrum. It's this radial velocity shift. So how do they form is the first question. We think it's because they used to have a, a very large AGB star companion, which makes it's this red giant that makes these heavy metals like barium and then dumps them onto the other star through their stellar wind. And you can accrete a stellar wind. It's, I always think of it as if you're a, a swimmer. If you jump in the swimming pool, swim one length and get out, you're wet. You've accreted material from the swimming pool. Now imagine that's made with some kind of heavy elements like barium and stuff like that. You'd look at your hair and you'd find bits of barium in it. That's exactly how it is. So now this the star that made the heavy elements is long dead. It's it ejected all its material. It's just a dead white dwarf swinging around in the binary orbit. But the star that accreted, which would have looked much like the sun originally, it has got old. And, you know, stars, when they get old, they're like humans, they get bigger, right? So it's now very large, very bright, and we can see it. Because the atmosphere is quite cool, the barium lines are very obvious. So barium stars are easy to spot. But the big mystery is, if it was an AGB star, then it should have been in a circular orbit, and also a reasonably close orbit, a few hundreds to thousands of days, period. But the models that we make completely disagree with what we see. So uh, the models say they're all, they should all be circular, but the observations say that they're eccentric. So we know that the models are either the tidal interactions are completely wrong, which is a possibility, but we've tested them on other stars, main sequence stars, so we, it's possibly not. Or there's some other interesting new physics, which we don't know. So my idea was that we could use kicks. Kick the white dwarf when you make it. Uh, this has been seen in white dwarfs in globular clusters. Okay. So with the kick, you will make the orbit more eccentric, That's right? the idea. Okay. So when, it's, when one star is an AGB star, you have very strong tidal interactions, and this circularizes the orbit, because the circular orbit is the lowest energy state. Yeah. So that's very simple to understand, and you can see the same thing with the, the Earth-Moon system. It's, it probably started with a collision and then was very eccentric, but now it has an eccentricity of, what, 5% or something that's very small. Mm -hmm. So we know tides are very efficient. So if at the end of this phase you give it a kick, it starts with an eccentricity of zero, whatever you do, it'll have to have a higher eccentricity after that. And we need eccentricities 0 0.2, 0 0.3, all the way up, for some of them, up to 0.9. So it's quite strong. One of them is a triple, so we can ignore that. Oh, wow. Triple systems are just confusing. Messy. <laughs> Messy, yeah. But you can pull that out and uh, you've still got problems. But it, it's a lot of physics that's in these systems. We have winds, wind accretion. Some of them have Roche lobe overflow, common envelopes, uh, a lot of AGB physics, the nuclear synthesis. We can probe that as well. So it's they're very interesting stars. And the set of observations is almost complete. So what I mean by that is that we see 100 barium stars in the sky. We have 100 good orbits and eccentricities. There's nothing missing. So it's a very very good constraint on binary evolution, stellar evolution, nuclear synthesis, all these things. So the barium star can't be single, ever? No. 
The barium doesn't there's come. There's none from... known. Okay. That could be single. You could have a, a, a star that's well, barium. It would just be a normal AGB star. Yeah. But it would be much brighter than the barium stars we see. And AGB stars live for what? A million years? Yeah. But a, a red giant will live for many tens of millions of years. So you're more likely to see all of them. So if you have 100 stars, you maybe one or two will be AGB stars, but all the rest will be red giants. And in the normal red giant phase, you're burning hydrogen in a shell, and you don't make heavy elements. And so we know they had to be made by an AGB star in the past. Okay. And that they are all binaries says to us, well, it was probably the binary companion that did okay. it. Uh, that fits very well. So the problem is to make the orbits more eccentric. Yeah, that's the that's the main problem. But then there's also the issue that the models say, okay, if we have wind accretion, as this, there are many theories of how to do wind accretion, then you should get barium stars with periods up to 10,000 days, but we don't see them. We see some with a few thousand days, but very few. So something about a wind accretion prescription that we use in the code is completely wrong. Now, it was designed by uh, Hoyle and Littleton back in early part of the 20th century, mid-20th century, and it's really the, the main approximation you have to use is that the wind is fast. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, in these binaries, it's not. But there is no good theory for slow wind accretion. Yeah, right. You have to use computer simulations. It becomes complicated because you have dust forming inside the binary, and where the dust forms, the radius where the dust forms is critical to how much you accrete on the companion. Yeah. And then some of the material is thrown out uh, through the what we call the Lagrange points. So you end up with a disk form around the binary, you get the circumbinary disk. And that may be what's causing the eccentricity pumping as well. You get these resonances in the disk and it interacts with the binary. So again, there's a lot of good physics in that that is poorly understood. Uh, we have people in Bonn who are working on simulations of this wind, what we call wind lobe overflow, or WAF, I think we wanted to call it. It's, okay. it's, uh, it's really difficult to do, though, numerically very challenging. And there's a, you need to put a lot of physics into your model. You can't just use a holistic N-body type model. You have to have proper hydrodynamical simulations. It's very tough. Putting in the chemistry as well. So uh, and there's a lot of stuff, good stuff in there that we don't understand. <laughs> okay. We need to keep working on. But, yeah. Uh, so what would it be like a good observational or maybe no, you need to play with the models, right? Because observations are there or do you need to... At the moment, I think the observations are there. The people I work with in Brussels are finishing the observations so they've got a few of the widest binaries to go. Once they've done that, that'll be complete, essentially. But there, there are other stars that are related to these. So um, post-AGB stars mm -hmm. are clearly related to barium stars. So as I said, uh, when you form, when you accrete the barium, one of the stars is a long time ago, yeah. and the, the primary AGB star, when it dies, it will form a post-AGB star before it becomes a planetary nebula. And we can't see it because, of course, it's long dead, but we can see younger versions of that that exist now. Yeah. And all the binaries that we look at there have these reasonably massive disks. So that's telling us something about the, the binary physics. And they're incredible objects because you can see the disks, you can actually resolve them with interferometry, which I find is amazing because they're the size of the solar system and yet we can see them. And, yeah. uh, they are fascinating objects. Uh, so we can look at those. 
And then if you go to lower metallicity, there are other styles which are thought to form by wind accretion. Often they're very carbon-rich. These things are called the CH stars in the halo. Mm -hmm. There's also these carbon-enhanced metal bore stars, which are right down at metallicities minus two to one hundredth of the solar iron abundance, really very rare objects. But again, thought to form by binary interactions, there's a very, very high binary fraction, which is compatible with 100% in some of these. So they're all related. It's just the metallicity is different, so the nucleosynthesis is different. And uh, they look different in the spectra because of the different metal content. But again, we don't understand those. And uh, the good statistic is if you look at the, the number of these carbon-rich, very metal-poor stars, it's way higher than we predict with the models. We predict 2%, 3%, something like that. And in the observations, it's more like an order of magnitude greater. So it's yeah. maybe 10 to 20%. And this is a big challenge for us at the moment. And again, I think it's all related to the, the same problem with the barium stars. The problem with the low metallicity stars, we don't have good periods for many of them because they're halo objects, so they're very distant. Okay. And it's much harder to get good observations on them. But the nucleosynthesis is even more interesting. It's full of carbon, sometimes full of nitrogen, oxygen, uh, all the things you expect in the galactic halo, the alpha elements, magnesium, things like that. And then they show all these heavy metal abundances. So they're barium, yttrium, strontium, lead, things like this. And some of them have even explosive nucleosynthesis elements in them, like europium. Oh, wow. And really, we don't know where that comes from. So you're probing the archaeology of the galaxy yeah. by looking at these stars. And, uh, having a complete set of binary-induced, chemically peculiar stars, you can tell a lot about not just the stars and the way stellar evolution works, but also about the galaxy. So they're very fascinating objects, and many problems with them still. That's pretty good. Well, thank you very much for the interview, and hope you can solve all the models and problems and everything well, soon. Not, not too quickly. <laughs> yeah, not too quickly. Thanks for that, Liz. And now it's time for that section of the show where we can't fit it in anywhere else. It's odds and ends time. So I wanted to talk about NASA's Mars Rover Spirit, which is one of the two Mars Rovers that NASA has up there, Spirit and Opportunity. And I've talked about Spirit quite a few times on the Jogcast. It got stuck on the Martian surface in May 2009 in somewhere that I think was called the Troy something or other, the Troy Crater or the Troy Plateau, I can't remember. But yes, it got stuck. Its wheels stopped moving. It was stuck in quite an interesting place, so it was still taking science data. Uh, it was digging up soil samples and analysing them, but not able to move anywhere. And NASA engineers and scientists had a replica of it on Earth that they um, put into similar conditions. They really tried hard to find a way to make it move. And then in December 2009, one wheel did move. And I think we mentioned it on Jogcast Live, and I was really excited. But unfortunately, nothing came of that. And communication with Spirit stopped on March 2010, so we haven't had any communication from it since then. It's been in the Martian winter, so it's not been able to get enough sunlight to generate power, and unfortunately NASA have now given up on trying to communicate with it again. So the way that they communicate with it is that they send out transmissions from Earth, and uh, Spirit has receivers that is meant to like get that signal, and then it's going to send a signal back. So NASA sent their last one on May the 25th, and nothing's happened, so they're giving up. Ooh. Been a pretty successful mission, though, considering it was only supposed to last about 100 days. Yeah, and it was sent up in 2004, so that's like seven years that it's been doing stuff. It's pretty good, and Opportunity's still going, but... Good on your spirit. 
Yeah. Maybe we should be happy. That's the spirit. Oh. <laughs> that was a good first job cast pun. I like it. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, interesting things have been happening with Alma, which is what I work on. So, on the 21st of April, the first European antenna was handed over to the joint Alma Observatory. The Europeans have built it, shipped it out, put it back together, and now it's been handed over to the actual observatory, which is a step forward for the uh, for the instrument. When the array is completed, it's going to be a mix of antennas. They're all going to be mainly 12 meters in diameter, and it's going to be a number from the Japanese, uh, the North Americans, and the Europeans. So already working up there are some of the Japanese and the American dishes, and now uh, the first European antenna or dish has joined them, which is definitely good for Europe. And then also a couple of days ago, on the 18th of May, the first 7-meter antenna has been uh, handed over as well. So, as I was saying, the, the, the main bulk of the dishes up when it's completed in the uh, Atacama Desert are going to be these 12-meter dishes, but they need some smaller dishes, so that's thus the building 12 7-meter dishes, um, because an interferometer is really good at getting high resolution, but they tend to miss out the extended emissions, so large-scale cloudy-type features get resolved out so you can't see them which is not great when you're trying to build a good image of the sky so that's what these seven meter dishes are for they're going to have a load of these close together in a compact array so there's going to be like next to no space between them so it'll act as like a big big single dish so they'll be able to observe all this extended emission so yeah the first one of those was handed over the other day and if you find pictures of them on the internet such as um, almaobservatory.org which we'll put in the show notes they look kind of weird because they're on the same bodies in inverted commas, as the 12-meter dishes, but they've got only 7-meter dishes, so they look like they've got big bodies and tiny heads compared to the the uh, (laughs) 12-meter dishes. And currently up there, there's somewhere above 10 uh, dishes, because by the end of this year, Alma will be taking science observations. Yay! Yes, yay. Uh, Libby's excited because she is going to be submitting a proposal to use it, and let's hope she gets time, and let's hope I get time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to know a bit more about Alma, Adam, you did an interview with some work experience students for the Jogcast, didn't you? Yep, in the February Extra edition. Of this year. Of this year, yes. Yes, so go um, and check that out. And for a reminder for everyone, there's going to be a really exciting event at Mosey on the 15th of June, which is going to be a series of talks and demonstrations, and then observing the lunar eclipse which is happening in the Hilton Hotel, where we have specially developed cocktails. Yeah, so that's Mosey is in the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester. Uh, a lot of jogcasters are taking part in that event. It's going from five o'clock until about nine o'clock in the evening. Dave Alt, who used to do the jogcast, is hopefully going to come up and do some special planetarium shows. So if anyone was listening to the jogcast when he did it, you'll know that he's very theatrical and that should be a really good experience. And a lot of other jogcasters are giving talks. We are running demonstrations. So <laughs> Libby's throwing balls into flour to demonstrate craters. I had so much fun testing that out. It's brilliant. So yes, all the details are on the Mosey website, which is moseymosi.org.uk. The entire event is free, but you have to book a place for the um, planetarium. There's going to be a planetarium show and talks in there, but there's only limited spaces. So there's an email address on the website for you to email for more details. We'll put a link in the show notes. And if you want to see what else is in the night sky while looking at the lunar eclipse, here's Ian Morrison to tell you what's in the northern hemisphere. The night sky for June. We don't get many hours of darkness, and to be honest, if you live up in the north of Scotland, around the summer solstice, it never really gets dark at all. But there are one or two nice things to see this month, so let's see what we can do. 
Well, I usually start with the stars, and as it finally gets dark, ten o'clock or so, Leo will be setting down in the west, and above that, you've got Ursa Major, with the stars Merak and Dubhe pointing up to Polaris. And I'm sure I've mentioned before, if you look at the central star Mizar, of the three stars that make up the handle of the saucepan or the shaft of the plough, then that's a double star. Alcor, the Outrider. And if you um, have very good eyesight, you might even see it's a double with your unaided eye. But you'll certainly do that with binoculars. And with a telescope, you'll actually see that um, Mizar is a double itself. So it's quite a nice little thing to look at. Now, as you work over from Leo down to the lower left, I suppose in the southwest, quite low down, you've got the constellation of Virgo. And we'll come back to that because the planet Saturn's there at the moment. Above that, you have a bright star, which is Arcturus, the brightest star in the constellation of Bootes. Rather nicely, to the left of that, and up a little bit, is a very sweet arc of stars, arclet, called Corona Borealis, the northern crown, to try and spot that. Now, rising up in the east, you have the constellations Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle. Their three brightest stars, respectively, are Deneb, Vega, and Altair, and they make up what is called the Summer Triangle. And I'll come back to those in a minute. But if you take the upper right hand of those three stars, which is Vega, and you take Arcturus, which I've just mentioned, and draw a line between them, almost halfway across, you actually come across the constellation of Hercules. The four brightest stars, and none of them are very bright, make up what is called the keystone, because it's sort of like a rectangle, but it's opened out a bit at the top, like the keystone of a bridge. If you've got binoculars, or better still, a small telescope, and you work up the right-hand side of that keystone, about two-thirds of the way up, you should see a little fuzzy glow. And that's the globular cluster called M13. It's the best globular cluster we can see in our northern skies. And it's a, a spherical mass of stars, perhaps a million or so, that are very old. They were probably formed, these globular clusters, at about the time our galaxy was formed. Not quite so prominent and somewhat sort of hiding in the, the shadow of M13. Up to the left of it is, in fact, another globular cluster probably we don't tend to look at much because we always look at M13. It's called M92, and that's quite a nice one to have a look at as well, a similar globular cluster, two of the best in our northern skies. Well, coming over to that summer triangle, Cygnus the Swan has a very lovely star, not very bright, called Albireo, which is the head of the swan, and again with a telescope that shows up as a wonderful double star. It's probably one of the best ones to observe because there's a beautiful colour contrast between a somewhat orangey star and a blue one. It looks very, very lovely in a telescope. I would commend that to you. Down to the lower left of Cygnus, which is basically going down towards the east from the star Altair, is a very small little constellation called Delphinus, the dolphin. It has a very tight little group of stars making up the head of the dolphin and a couple that sort of form its tail. A little diamond shape. Very, very nice to see. And I'll come back 
to the summer triangle in one of the highlights later on. So although we don't have many hours, there's quite a nice skyscape and that lovely region, including Cygnus, is gradually becoming more obvious to us. So let's move on to the planets. To be frank, it's not really the best month for observing planets. The only one we can see tolerably well, as we shall see, is Saturn. But let's start, as I usually do, with Jupiter. That's now a pre-dawn object, but as the ecliptic, which is where you tend to find the planets, it's the path of the sun across the sky, is at a relatively low angle to the horizon. Even as Jupiter moves away from the sun in angle, its elevation before dawn isn't very high. Its magnitude increases slightly from about minus 2.1 to minus 2.2, so that's reasonably bright. The angular size, still about 35 arc seconds across, gradually getting bigger as it comes around into the sky. But to be honest, because of its low elevation, it's not really a good month to observe any details on the surface, but you could have a try. Well, Saturn I'll talk about twice, largely in the um, highlights of the month. It's a late evening object, visible low in the southwest after sunset in the constellation of Virgo. The magnitude starts off at about plus 0.8 and in fact decreases just a touch to plus 0.9 at the end. The rings have stayed pretty much the same in their opening angle. It's actually been reducing during the year just a touch from about 10 degrees down to a minimum of 7.5 degrees this month. And that's, in fact, due to the changing aspect of our viewpoint from the Earth. But from then on, it begins to open up more and more widely. And uh, by the end of the year, when we actually see it in the pre-dawn sky, then we'll have a chance to see the rings a little bit more open. But you can still see Cassini's division, which separates two of the bands, and also, with a reasonably good small telescope, Titan, and possibly given a very dark sky, other moons as well. Well, we'll come right into the innermost of our planets, Mercury. It passes behind the Sun on June the 12th, so you obviously can't see it during the early part of the month. But by the end, by about the 23rd of the month, it will become visible in the late evening twilight in the west-northwestern horizon. Magnitude, in fact, on the 23rd is minus 1, so it's reasonably bright. The way to find it, actually, is to have a good low horizon visible to you before the sun sets and note where the sun actually sets in sort of azimuth. And then have a chat or a read or something for about 45 minutes as it gets darker. Look in about the same direction and with binoculars, there's a good chance you'll actually pick up Mercury. By the end of the month, it's actually 19 degrees away from the sun and 10 degrees above the horizon at sunset. So it'll be slightly easier to see, although its magnitude has dropped a touch to minus 0.9. The disk, quite small, just six arc seconds across, and it's actually going to be about 76% illuminated. So a little, little round disk you'll see. Well, Mars, that's uh, now visible in the pre-dawn sky. But again, as the ecliptic is at a shallow angle to the horizon, it will have a rather low elevation. So you'll need a good low eastern horizon and quite probably a pair of binoculars to spot it. The magnitude increases a fraction from plus 1.3 to plus 1.4 and its angular size 
still only about four arc seconds. But it is the beginning of a Mars apparition, and the images of Mars tend to get a bit excited when the angular diameter becomes greater than about five or six arc seconds. At that point, you can begin, under good conditions, to make out some features on the surface. So gradually, over the next few months, it'll become nearer and brighter, and no doubt it'll be a highlight sometime around the turn of next year. It lies, in fact, in Taurus, roughly halfway between the Hyades and the Pleiades clusters. Venus is again a pre-dawn object, but a bright one, at magnitude minus 3.8. That stays absolutely steady during the month. It's moving well towards the far side of the Sun, and the angular size is just down to about 10 arc seconds. But as it gets further away, further behind the Sun, more of its disk is illuminated. It'll be about 95% illuminated this month. And the two effects tend to cancel out. The effective area that's reflecting the Sun stays the same, so the brightness stays the same. On June the 8th, it passes just 6 degrees below the Pleiades cluster, and on the 18th, it's just 5 degrees above Aldebaran, the eye of the bull, which lies in front of, and not part of, the Hyades cluster. So with binoculars, that's a bit more than one field of view, typically with a pair of binoculars, so it'd be quite easy to find. Okay, finally, let's have a look at some of the highlights. Well, I've already mentioned Saturn, but it is probably the last good month to observe it during this particular apparition. It's lying in Virgo, as I said, but very close to the star Gamma Virginis, or Porima. And on June the 10th, they're at their closest, with a separation of just 15 arc minutes. The apparent moving westwards of Saturn across the sky over the last month or so is called retrograde motion. Saturn continues to actually move eastwards around the sky, as seen from the Sun, but because the Earth is actually moving around faster on the inside track, it actually appears to go backwards for a bit. The rings are about 7 degrees from the line of sight, as I've said before. The outer ring is called the A ring, and then you have the slightly brighter B ring. They're separated, as I've said, by the Cassini division. And within them, not so easy to spot, is the faint and somewhat elusive C or crepe ring. With a small telescope, you should see some bands around the surface. They're not really as strong as those you see on Jupiter, but they are visible. Now, having looked at Saturn, as I think I said last month, just have a look at Porima. It's a double star, made up of two identical stars, each with a magnitude of 3.5. Now, way back in 1919, they were separated by about six arc seconds. That's an easy split in a telescope. But around 2005 what's called periastron, they were so close you could hardly see them as two stars. But they're opening out again, they're about 1.7 arc seconds apart now, and under good seeing conditions, which means the atmosphere is relatively stable, you should be able to split them again. Well, a couple of things about the Moon. We do in fact have a totally eclipsed Moon, or a total eclipse of the Moon. But it happens largely before the Moon rises. So at about 9.20, 21.20 BST on the 15th of June, if you look towards the southeastern horizon, and it's not too hazy, and it's clear, and that's asking quite a bit, you might well see 
a totally eclipsed moon rising above the horizon. Because it'll be low down and the haze, it may not be very visible to start with. But gradually, over the next hour or so, it rises. It's still in totality. It remains in the partial shadow of the Earth until about uh, just after 11, but it's only still at an elevation of 7 degrees, so it's not the best time to see an eclipse of the Moon, really. It finally moves out of the Earth's shadow at about midnight. So it'll be interesting to see how much we can see, simply because it's so low. But 2120, on the 15th of June, perhaps the best highlight of this month. Now, the Moon has a very low declination this month. It means it's at the lowest part of its orbit as we see it around full moon. So it's never very high above the horizon. And that's when, of course, we have the so-called moon illusion, when the moon looks very, very big, far bigger than it looks when it's high up in the sky. An interesting point is this. When we see it high in the sky, we're nearest to it by about one extra Earth radii, rather than when we see it when it's rising. So it's actually bigger, in actual fact, in angular size, by about one part in 60. The 60 Earth radii is the Moon's distance from the centre of the Earth. So it actually should look bigger when it's high in the sky, and of course it doesn't. It looks much smaller. The Moon illusion has a number of reasons why it might happen. I wrote about one that I think is by far the greatest sense in my book called um, Introduction to Astronomy and Cosmology. And one of the reviewers just hashed that completely. He didn't like it at all. This is my thought, and it's not just me. It's one that I've read about, and a lot of people think it's the best explanation. The dome of the sky, us looking upwards, does not appear as a hemisphere. As we look towards the horizon in either direction, it appears much further away than when we look upwards. So it's like a flattened dome. And obviously, we see clouds in the sky, and they're much nearer to us, above us, than when away. So perhaps that's why we do feel that the sky dome is not hemispherical but squashed. So when we see the moon high up, our brain thinks it's a lot nearer than when we see it near the horizon. And there is some subtle process that goes on in the brain that says, well, if things are actually nearer, we'll actually not make them look quite as big as if we think they're further away. So when we think the moon on the horizon is a lot further away, we tend to make it bigger. And there are quite a number of tests that people have done using lines and grids with little figures on them that certainly seem to bear this out. So I think it's because we think we live under a flattened dome sky rather than anything else. I mentioned the um, summer triangle. If you, with binoculars, start at the lower right star, which is Altair, and move a third of the way towards Vega, you should spot a rather lovely little asterism. It's called Brocky's Cluster, and nobody calls it that, to be honest, because we call it the coat hanger, because it looks just like a little coat hanger, a horizontal arm and the hook above it. It's actually upside down as we see it, but if you use a telescope, that will put it the right way up, probably. And it's a very nice little sweet thing to see. So all you have to do, start at Altair, move up towards Vega about a third of the way, and you should come across this little, rather nice little group of stars. It's very close to a very small constellation called Sagitta the Arrow, which is down to its lower left. One final thing. Dawn on June the 28th, we have quite a nice skyscape. 
a thin crescent moon with three planets in the pre-dawn sky. So if you look east-northeast about 40 minutes before sunrise on June the 28th, and you do need a good low horizon for that, you'll see a very thin crescent moon up to the right of the planet Venus, which is well low down near the horizon. About a third of the way from the moon towards Venus is Mars at 1.4 magnitudes, and that will be seen above Aldebaran, the eye of the bull, looking towards the Hyades cluster. The Pleiades cluster might just be seen above and to the left of the moon, and over to the upper right you'll see Jupiter. So that's quite a nice little skyscape just to end the months observing. And of course, as we go through July and August, the nights will start getting longer, and we haven't got to get up quite so early or to get, go to bed quite so late. So that'll be a help. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our friends in the Southern Hemisphere, here's John Field. Kia and welcome to the June Jodcast coming to you from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. The southern hemisphere is now in the grip of winter with long nights and short days. This allows us the best chance for some observing. Some locations may have over 15 hours or greater of night time. This means that some of the stars we see setting in our evening sky can also be seen rising in the morning sky. June the 22nd marks the winter solstice in the southern hemisphere, and here in New Zealand the dawn rising of Matariki, the Pleiades, and Puanga, or Rigel, were used by Māori in various parts of New Zealand, to mark the changing of Timaramataka, the Māori annual calendar. Our southeastern sky is dominated by the zodiac constellation of Scorpius, and following behind is Sagittarius the Archer. The Scorpion is marked by the red star Antares, the rival of Mars. This red giant star is the 16th brightest star in our night sky, and at an estimated distance of 600 light years away, it has a diameter 800 times greater than that of our star, the Sun, and is 10,000 times brighter. Antares has a faint companion star that is difficult to observe in small telescope. To Māori and many Polynesian cultures, Scorpius is seen as a fishing hook, a much more familiar item here in the South Pacific. One of the names for Antares is Rahua, marking the eye of the hook. Straddling the Milky Way, the region around Scorpius is host to a number of star clusters and nebulae, many of which are easily observed. Near to Antares is the bright globular cluster M4. At 7,200 light years away, it is one of the closest globular clusters to us. Observations in 1995 with the Hubble Space Telescope revealed that some of the stars in M4 are amongst the oldest in our galaxy at an age of 13 billion years. A fainter globular cluster can also be found close to Antares. Long exposure images of this region reveal tendrils of dark material and glowing nebulosity, making a stunning picture. Along the curved body of the Scorpion, there are a number of visual double stars that make a lovely sight to the unaided eye, as well as binoculars and telescopes. Near the stinger of the Scorpion, we find the naked eye cluster of stars that resembles a comet. NGC 6231 is a cluster of stars similar in size to the Pleiades, but about 6,000 light years away. The stars in this cluster are much brighter, though, and would shine as bright as Sirius if the cluster was at the same distance as the Pleiades in our night sky. Below the sting of the scorpion, we find M7, which can be seen as a haze to the unaided eye. It makes for a nice view in binoculars or wide-field telescopes. Nearby and much fainter is the butterfly cluster, M6, at a distance of 1,300 light-years away. Other binocular objects are M21 and 23, NGC 6167 and 6193. Perhaps the most spectacular clusters in nebulae, 
in this region are the Lagoon and Trifid. These sit in the nearby constellation of Sagittarius. Representing a kneeling arch, Sagittarius dates back to the Babylonian mythology. The Lagoon Nebula is also known as M8, and it gets its name as it appears as a compact cluster of stars surrounded by a circle of nebulosity with a dark rift. The western part of M8 is dominated by two bright stars that are about six magnitude. The eastern part has a loose cluster of stars, and from studying the types of stars in the cluster, it is estimated that it's a very young cluster, only a few million years old. In this nebula are a number of dark globules that are regions around forming protostars. At 4,000 to 6,000 light years away, this is one of the few star-forming regions visible to the human eye. The Trifid or M20 is seen as a small region of nebulosity nearby to the lagoon. With a 200mm or greater telescope, it should be possible to spot the dark lanes that split the nebula into three sections. Long exposure images reveal a nebulosity consisting of red emission and blue reflection. At a distance of 7,600 light years away, it shines in our sky at magnitude 6.3. Sagittarius is host to a large number of globular clusters ranging from large and bright to small and faint that can be easily found. The brightest stars of Sagittarius form an asterism called the teapot. Lambda Sagittarii marks the top of the teapot, and nearby are the globular clusters M22 and M28. M22 at magnitude 6 is one of the brightest in our night sky and can be easily found in binoculars. It is also one of the most massive globular clusters in our galaxy and one of the closest to our solar system. Small telescopes should easily resolve individual stars in this cluster. Noted by Messier in 1764 as a nebula containing no stars, William Herschel became the first to resolve stars in the cluster. This cluster is much dimmer than it should be, and this is due to the intervening interstellar material between us and the cluster. M23 is an open cluster, 2,000 light years away, consisting of over 100 stars visible forming curving arcs and chains. M24 is a bright region of stars and are often called the small Sagittarius star cloud. This cloud includes a number of dark nebulae superimposed on a brilliant background. M25 is a bright open cluster with a number of deep yellow stars and is about 2,000 light years away. M55 at magnitude 7.4 is a bright globular cluster 16,000 light years away discovered in 1752. Binoculars will reveal it as a hazy star and progressively larger telescopes reveal more and more stars. Surprisingly, there is a galaxy visible in Sagittarius. NGC 6822 is known as Barnard's Galaxy, and it resides in the northeastern part of the constellation. It is an irregular dwarf galaxy that is best viewed in a wide-field telescope. The Milky Way is at its brightest, widest, and densest in this region. The Milky Way has been seen as a river, a sky road, or a bridge between the heavens and earth. The Arabians called it Al-Nahar, the river. The Chinese referred to it as the river of heaven. Tamari is called Te'ikaroa, the long fish. Today we know the Milky Way is the plane of our galaxy stretching across our night sky. The region of Sagittarius is in the direction of galactic centre, estimated to be 30,000 light years away. In this region there is an area known as Sagittarius Star A, and it is here that a supermassive black hole resides. By watching the motion of stars moving in this region, astronomers estimate its mass as about 3 million times that of our Sun. In our evening sky, we can see the planet Saturn still high in the north, in the constellation of Virgo, as a yellow star. In our morning sky, we have the planets Jupiter, Venus, Mars and Mercury rising up before sunrise. Mercury will be lost into our morning twilight at the start of the month, and Venus will also be very low. Mars will be high, but still low in our dawn sky, whilst Jupiter will be steadily getting higher. A total eclipse of the moon occurs on the morning of June the 16th, New Zealand Standard Time. The moon enters the penumbra just after 5.24am, 
It starts moving into the total shadow of the umbra almost an hour later, but by then the moon will be very low on our horizon in New Zealand. Australia though will have a better view, but even there in the east the moon will set before the end of total eclipse. Those in Western Australia will see all stages of the eclipse. We hope you enjoyed our Jodcast and we wish you all clear skies. Thanks for that, John. And here we come to the feedback section of the show and we have post! Yay! <laughs> Love post. <laughs> and this postcard is from someone on a yacht called the Virginian in the Bay of Biscay who's been battling F6 and F7 winds. And they say, thanks for a great and informative astronomy podcast. And they normally listen to the programme travelling to work, but yes, as you can say, they're on a yacht. So I hope they're having a very nice time in the Bay of Biscay on the yacht and the winds have died down and they get some nice sun instead. And we have a very nice postcard of the Lacunia Tower at night with a picture of the moon and a lovely sky. We've had no emails, but on the forum there's been quite a bit of activity Chris B. said that his 10-year-old son has been listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast on the Big Bang and was after book recommendations that are suitable for his age that would tell more about the subject. I suggested George's Secret Key to the Universe by Stephen and Lucy Hawking. I'm not sure what age that's aimed at. I read it a couple of years ago and I liked it. But I assume it's aimed at like pre-teen, kind of 9 to 12-year-olds. You were pre-teen a few years ago, right? (laughs) (laughs) Not that young. And thanks also to Switty, Rapid Eye, Susan K and Earth Unit for commenting on the May Extra show. If you have any comments about this show, yeah, go and join the forum because we like talking to you on there. And a couple of days ago, uh, I was hanging out on the forums and I started a thread asking for people for ideas for an astronomy playlist. So any songs that have anything vaguely to do with uh, astronomy and space and objects in space, let me know. I mean... I listed a whole bunch of David Bowie tracks because, especially in the 70s, he liked to write about things like that. If you've got any ideas, let me know, and then we'll try and compile this awesome list and then think of an event where we could use it. <laughs> I just want to have a disco, yeah. an astronomy That's, disco. Yeah. Even that, just a David Bowie disco. <laughs> now to Twitter. Uh, thank you to everyone for your retweets and for following us on Follow Fridays. And also thanks to Le Moustier, who has said, At Jogcast, just in time for my birthday. Looking forward to listening on my walk into work. A strong shot of astronomy to start my day. And we all hope that you had a very nice birthday listening to the Jogcast. Happy birthday. And on Flickr, there's been quite a few photos added to the group of Jodrell Bank, especially of the Lovell Telescope. I'm not quite sure how Flickr works. I guess someone's gone round and found nice photos of the Lovell that are already on Flickr and add them to the group. I have no idea. But my favourite one is an infrared shot taken by Hot Picks UK Tony Smith of the Lovell Telescope. It's taken at a wavelength of 720 nanometers, which is just outside what your eyes can see. It's just outside the optical range. And that just looks really cool. Yeah, if anyone has any more sort of long wavelength shots, like something in the hydrogen 21 centimeter line, which is what the Lovell dish looks at, um, that'd be great too. I don't think that's actually possible to take an image of the Lovell in that. I don't know. It's probably a bit dim, actually, in that light. (laughs) And if you want to share any pictures with us or get in touch with us, you can do so by the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Or if you want to send in any more long wavelength photos, go to flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. We'd like to thank Gianfranco Bertoni, Mike Emmons and Rob Izzard for the interviews. And thank you to Martin Reese for doing our intro-outro. The editors were Adam Averson, Megan Argo, Claire Bretherton, Melanie Gendre, Liz Guzman and Mark Perver. 
And the producer was Jen Gupta. Woo! Until next time. Jod on. Bye. 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 I'm Martin Rees, and you've been listening to Jodcast, the best podcast in the cosmos. <laughs>